HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. The great state of Wisconsin is home to the only master cheesemaking program outside of Switzerland. Learn more about Wisconsin's cheesemaking history at wisconsincheese.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported podcast network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. This year, we're celebrating 10 years of food radio. For the past decade, we've been taking you behind the scenes of farms, restaurants, breweries, school cafeterias, and more. It's been 10 years, and we're just getting started. Find us, heritageradionetwork.org. Hello, and welcome to Speaking Broadly. You're listening to Dana Cowan on Heritage Radio Network. Each week, I interview extraordinary people about their journey, their challenges, their successes in this amazing food world. And today, I have someone who is an extraordinary adventurer, a winemaker, a sommelier, and someone I admire greatly. Welcome, Carla Rizabetz. Yes, thank you. It's so good to good to have you here. I've watched your journey from wine director at the Spotted Pig, John Dory and the Breslin, all the way to making your own wine in Australia. And it's been such an extraordinary transformation to watch. What attracted you to the wine part of the restaurant world? I'm 41. I just turned 41. And this was around when I was 30, 28, 29, somewhere around there. Um, I was working at Blue Water Grill as a server. I had graduated NYU a few years previous. And I had worked in some theater and worked and done stuff with my friends, done some off-Broadway stuff. And I, I knew very distinctly that I was no longer in love with acting. There was a hungryness, this like aching hunger that people in audition rooms had to be validated and to be told that they were loved and it made me sad to work in that energy so I was like I can't do this as a as a as a life path I mean I was working at Blue Water Grill at the time and as a server and then a bartender and one of my regulars uh worked for Forbes Life magazine he was the editor of Forbes Life he would come in sit at the bar and drink a bottle of Chablis and drink and eat a chopped salad like once a week and I talked to him about this amazing life of travel and eating and drinking. And I admired him and his lifestyle. And at the time, I knew that I didn't want to act anymore. I didn't know what I wanted to do. And so I was like, you know what? I have to make a change. And I don't know, I don't know what to plug my heart into because it's no longer plugged into performance. And 
I found his number, cold called him and left a message. Said, hi, this is Carla, your bartender from Blue Water Grill. I need to talk to you. And that's it. I said, please call me back. And I walked inside and I was shaking and I, I drank my drink. And he called me back immediately. And he's like, where'd you get my number? <laughs> I said, a friend, a friend tracked it down for me. Um, and he said, you have a lot of balls calling me. I said, I need your advice. He said, okay, let's meet for a bottle of wine. And he sat me down a week later or whatever it was. Um, and he said, what do you want to know? And I said, I need to know how to have your life. I said, I'm in a period of flux right now, but I see what you're doing and I love what you're doing in terms of traveling, eating, and drinking. How did you get there? And so we had a big discussion. And he said, choose one of those things to begin with. Make yourself absolutely necessary to who your employer is. And then you'll do just fine. He said, you have enough energy and charisma to sell hats on a corner. You'll do just fine. <laughs> so I picked wine. The next day I signed up for uh, WSET wine classes and just took it from there. Do you feel like you have an inherent talent for wine? I have an inherent talent for passion. And so I think that wine is an easy thing to overlap with that. Same with food. I didn't know anything about food or wine until later in life. I didn't grow up with that as, a, as an awareness. Um, and so I jumped in like head first from starting as a busser and a dishwasher in Hawaii, my first restaurant job um, when I was around 21. And I, I loved the service of it. I loved the service of the dining room. I loved providing service. There's something so fulfilling about it. Um, and of course, I love eating and drinking. So it just kind of moved from there. You became the wine director at now an infamous restaurant group, but at the time a famous restaurant group. The pair who ran it were April Bloomfield and Ken Friedman with Mario Batali as an investor. When you first went to the restaurant, what attracted you to that team? So after Blue Water Grill, I left there and I started working at Hearth in the East Village because I wanted to go work with Paul Greco. I was bartending there and I needed more uh, I needed more money. I was paying off my student loans. I'm still paying off my student loans. Um, and I needed a second job. So I got a job bartending at the Breslin. And the manager who hired me knew that I was studying wine in these WSET courses. And apparently she told Ken that because after one of the training days or whatever, before we opened, Ken pulled me aside afterwards. And I knew that he was one of the owners of the restaurant, but I'd never met him. He pulled me aside. He's like, I need to talk to you. And I was like, like, how did, how am I getting fired already? What have I done? Like, we haven't even opened. And he pulled me aside. He said, get yourself a beer and come over here. And he sat me down in one of the Breslin booths and he shut the curtains and he said, I hear you're studying wine. How would you like to take over our list? And I sat there and my heart was thumping and I tried to be so cool. I threw my arm over the back of the banquette, and it was a stupid move because they were really high banquettes, and so I was just like hanging there. It was ridiculous, and my feet were thumping, and um, I said, yes, I am studying wine. I played it real cool. Um, and he said, great, would you like to take over the wine program? And I said, yes, I would love to. And I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know how to do that. From there, I it was just this full-on, like, full-gas a million hours a day working nonstop. And I later asked Ken, why did you give this to me? This doesn't make sense. So he said, I knew if I gave it to you, you would turn that into your life. He said, you have star quality, which is something Ken loves to tell people because he was in the music business. You have star quality, and I knew that you would fight for it if I gave it to you and told you it was yours. And here we are. That is an extraordinary story, particularly considering 
Ken's subsequent downfall. Well, you can talk more about what Ken was accused of. Sexual harassment. Yeah, plain and simple. But he's also a really problematic figure, like a, abusive. So there's the, there's the harassment, but there's an entire world that actually went with that. There's the mental weakening of people around you in order to have control over them and in order to make them feel like they need you or need the job. For me, I was so in love with that job. He's totally right. I gave everything. I couldn't hold down relationships. I worked nonstop. I was malnourished, like my nails were breaking, and I loved the work. I loved selling wine. I loved teaching my staff. I loved April's food. Um, I loved all of it, and I just was able to say, okay, this is happening. I know this is wrong. I know what he's saying is wrong. I know him slapping my ass is wrong. I know the texts that he sent saying, send me naked photos of you. I know this is wrong. I know this is wrong. But I love my job, and I don't want to give it up. And I think, in retrospect, part of his like mental manipulation is making people think that if you're not orbiting him in his universe, then you don't stand a chance. So there would be moments where he was just he would just say like, you know, I created you. Without us, where would you be? And it's just this constant like breaking down of people around him that made people scared to leave. He would threaten to blacklist us. If you if you quit, like you'll never work in New York again. And so it's just this ridiculous downward spiral. I've heard that story from so many people. Yeah. This sense of finding people who are stars and yet also have the vulnerability mm-hmm. to hear what he's saying and believe it. Yeah. As opposed to hear it and saying, you know what? You didn't make me. I, yeah. I made myself, that's why you chose me. Yeah. Because you know I have that power. But he managed to see that the twinning yeah. of the strength and the vulnerability. Yeah, twinning is an amazing word for it. That's that's it. It's the they they're they're soul sisters, those two things. And they often go together in people, especially young people who don't have the experience yet to be in that position or to be in that world. And so, of course, they're afraid because they don't have the background of anyone ever having told them, you're going to do just fine. You were able to take advantage of this amazing opportunity, and it also kicked you in the ass. When you weren't taking care of yourself and your nails were splitting and you're working too hard and you're loving your job, when did you finally wake up and say... I need to take care of myself. You know, my now husband, then a professional like colleague uh, before we were sucking face and making out as Richard Betts, um, he's the one who pointed it out to me. I didn't even realize it was happening. He's like, look at your nails. What's wrong with your nails? For the nail thing specifically. My nails were all cracking. He's like, what do you eat? And I was like, you know, you do as you do in restaurants. You just nibble all day, but you never have real meals. And so he was the one who, who started to cook for me once we got together. He would come and pick me up from all in whatever restaurant I was working in that night. He would pick me up when I got off take me home and there would be dinner waiting. And I literally watched my body change with food. It started with that and it, of course, turned into this like amazing love affair. I'm very in love with my husband. (laughs) Um, (laughs) um, I think I was able to plug my heart into him. And then from there, I was able to see, oh my God, I'm in love with something else. He was greater than the job. He was bigger than what I was doing. It wasn't that I wanted to leave New York. It wasn't that I wanted to leave the restaurants. He was just a bigger love and it was undeniable. I could not not do that. And so that became the next step. When you talk about plugging yourself in to this power socket of passion, Mm -hmm. I wonder if you ever think, wow, like where's the socket within me? Because that's all plugging externally and looking for that next thing. Yeah, you're totally right. That's a good one. 
hit that one on the head. It's a great, great question. I don't know the answer. When you were developing the, the wine list mm-hmm. and you had no idea, yeah. I mean, studying and developing wine list are really two different real things. Different, real different stages of the game. Yeah. So how did you educate yourself? I, I was in over my head so much that I, I told myself, Carly, you are going to make this happen. You will not sink. Keep swimming. This will happen. Do not have any like self-consciousness about it. You're in over your head. Work to get your head above water. So I ask questions of everybody. How does this work? What are margins? How do you do this? How does this work? Just very, very, very unashamed to be very humble. <laughs> um, one of the first reps who came in. Uh, so these are people who sell, sell wine yeah, to the restaurants. Sorry, sorry. Who have big portfolios and they're like, I have 30 wines. Don't you want to buy them all? Yes, of course. And when the first my first uh, rep came in and I had my first meeting, I was like, how am I going to find other wines? And she's like, sweetheart, they will find you. Don't you worry. Like you have no idea what you've just gotten yourself into. Um, but I also said, can you tell me how this whole process works? Can you? And I asked my rep, like, when is this ever happened? It seems hard to quiet the voice that says, oh my God, I don't know anything. I'm a, I'm a fraud. They're going to sniff this out. The entire out. time. The entire time. I went to therapy to have, to like figure out how to work through the self-doubt. And a lot of that was from Ken. I mean, that's part of this mental kind of power that he wanted. And he had, um, yeah. Did you come up with a solution to that self-doubt, aside from just saying, shut up? I remember in the beginning, there was a tipping point when I first started working there, when I saw Ken get angry, or I saw him verbally abuse staff, and I said, this is not a safe thing, this is not correct, this is probably illegal, but right now it's working in my favor. And I made a deal with myself. I said, once it tips into not being in my favor, and it's completely in their favor, that's when I'll leave. And so when when that happened, and it happened to coincide with when Richard and I were falling in love, something in me shifted dramatically. And I was able to see that I didn't want to be part of that kind of mental murkiness anymore, or that like emotional... It was an emotional state of hunger, you know, like a, a desire to be validated. And I, I didn't want that anymore. I wanted something instead of reacting to feeling empty or feeling like self-conscious. Uh, I wanted to react to feeling full and feeling fed and feeling loved. It's literally, I've never even articulated this before. It was, I wanted a different feeling in life. When you packed up and left New York, you left some things on the sidewalk in Chinatown. You left with a single suitcase with the greatest love of your life. Yeah. Because now your husband, Richard (laughs) What was it like to walk out the door, close it, and say to yourself, I'm done with this entire life, starting an extraordinary new chapter, but you're also yeah. leaving something behind. Somebody at the time gave me this phrase, and it's, uh, it's really, really useful. He said, right now you have escape velocity. You are gaining escape velocity. And it is, it is the power, and it is the belief, and it is the excitement that launches you out of what, everything that you know, everything that's familiar, everything that feels safe. And it launches you into the unknown. And that launch is so exciting and it's so thrilling and it's terrifying but the thrill of it is way bigger than the than the terrifying part um but then there's a fall after that and so the fall of leaving new york 
Um, I'm still dealing with not leaving New York or the jobs, that's not it. It's this huge shift that I chose and I made happen into a completely new life. It was literally the unknown, just walking with your eyes closed and like your hands out, feeling for something that feels nice and maybe that's what you'll do next. So I'm still dealing with this, this profound shift. So you went to Boulder, Mm -hmm. which is where Richard lived. He's a master sommelier and lived in Aspen, but had moved to Boulder to launch a business. Yeah. And when you got there, you were inside Richard's world. Yeah. And Richard's life, which was great because he's a huge love. But what was it like to insert yourself into some... Terrible. It was awful. I disliked my time in Boulder... I met some beautiful people there, and I have great friends from that time. But when I went there, I knew nobody. And I was in his life with his family and in his, like, Richard Betts master sommelier world. And I think my ego took a huge hit professionally just because I was now just a wife of somebody apparently more important. But being in Boulder, not the professional aspect, but the personal aspect, was really difficult. This is this is years later that we're talking about, um, and I'm still talking to myself and internally about what was so hard about Boulder. My mom gave me a really cool uh, piece of advice. She's like, you could have gone anywhere and you would have felt the same way. That fallout from that escape velocity peak, that fallout would have happened anywhere. You just happened to be in Boulder. And so it probably would have happened anywhere because the, the fall from this idea of moving to New York and like living this big thing and then I got this big wine job and it turned out to this be this, you know, lots of press and all this stuff into moving into this like quiet area where I knew nobody and where there was nothing happening around me other than moving into the small town in somebody else's life. I think there's also the, the trauma of the place you left. Yeah. You left with this damaged feeling that you couldn't probably entirely identify. Yeah. Because you left for a completely different reason. You didn't leave saying, you people are treating everyone poorly, me included, and you're ruining my self-esteem. They just wrecked your self-esteem. Yeah. You found love, which helped your self-esteem, but you know the damage went with you. I, I had not digested the entire process. And I didn't realize that I hadn't digested it. I assumed that I had because I was able to leave and it was a nice clean cut and it felt like a relief. But I had heard that people were talking to the New York Times and I assumed that they would come and knock on my door. And when they did, at first I said, I don't want to talk to you. This is in my past. I'm not interested. And then I went out to dinner with a friend and Richard in Amsterdam where we live. And we were talking about the New York Times article and what had precipitated this and why why we were in this situation to begin with. And I was like, no, 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 I'm not going to talk. I'm not going to talk. I feel like it's in my past. I, I feel like I'm done with it, you know? And then... Uh, I started just in talking about it, I started crying and it turned into those big like kid cries where you're just heaving and looking for breath. And I was like, well, look at this. It's still in me. Um, And so then I said, how am I going to move through this truly, like finally? And it was talking to the New York Times about how this had happened and sharing this story. And the only drive for me personally was to let it go. It wasn't to out Ken or hurt April. I didn't care about Ken and April anymore in that way. I cared deeply about myself and the fact that I was still carrying this. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to hear more from Carla Rizza Betts. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. 
Did you know that 90% of Wisconsin's milk is made into cheese? And this is not just any milk. When Swiss, German, and Italian cheesemakers first settled into Wisconsin, they chose their new home because of the special terroir of the region. Its soil and water are nurtured by the goodness of glacial sediment, and those elements lend themselves to the very best milk. Today, Wisconsin produces 25% of all cheeses made in the U.S., and Wisconsin cheeses have won more awards than any other state or country in the world. How did they do it? Wisconsin cheesemakers combined their heritage and tradition with nonstop innovation. They were the first state to establish cheese grade standards and the first to require that every cheese plant be overseen by a licensed cheesemaker. Wisconsin is the only place outside of Europe where one can pursue an elite master cheesemaker certification. All of these impeccably high standards mean Wisconsin produces more than 48% of the nation's specialty cheese. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. It's Todd Shulkin, the host of Inside Julia's Kitchen here on HRN. Inside Julia's Kitchen carries on Julia Child's legacy of introducing the brightest lights in the food world to a wider audience, just as Julia did from her home kitchen. Look for Inside Julia's Kitchen wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome back to this episode of Adventure Wine and Emotion with Carla Rizabetz. So you you were in, in Boulder. How long were you in Boulder? Two, two and a half years-ish. And was it at that time you hatched this extraordinary plan for travel and making wine and moving and now you travel 300 days a year? Yeah, in a bad year. <laughs> in a good year it's about 250, but yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah still big. Um, is that where you hatched the plan for mm-hmm. your travel or did that yeah. come a little later? The, well, the travel, it's not really a plan. Like Richard was already living this life of lots of travel and wine and food. And so I just kind of inserted myself into that when we were together. Um, and then we started talking about how we were going to work together uh, in terms of just me having a job. I, I'm a worker and I like working. I enjoy working. Um, and so that's when we hatched the idea of starting a wine project together. And you started in Boulder, but how did you decide to move to Amsterdam? Um, again, it's funny how limiting the brain, uh, it, the, the brain is set in its own kind of like autopilot, and it happens to be, for a lot of us, um, very limiting. And so in that moment, when we, it occurred to us that we could leave New York, it was just this shocking revelation. And then a few years later, um, we were traveling for, we were in, I think, Madrid for Thanksgiving. We were eating anchovies on Thanksgiving Day and drinking sherry. And uh, Richard's like, let's go somewhere else for a few days after this. And I said, great, do you want to go to Amsterdam? And he's like, oh, I've never been. Isn't it just about the red light and, you know, smoking weed? And I had finished my last semester in Amsterdam um, at NYU in 2003. I lived there for a summer and performed there. And I loved that city. But I hadn't been back since then. And so we were like, yeah, fuck it, let's go. Um, We got there. We arrived to Amsterdam at night. And we were taking a cab from the airport to the hotel. And by the time the cab had reached the hotel, which is about a 20-minute drive, Richard goes, this city is amazing. He goes, I could totally live here. And both of us looked at each other. And our heads did that emoji exploding head thing. And both of us were like, no way. We haven't even considered leaving the U.S. And once that brain box was opened, it was this, we were able to dream bigger than we had previously, simply because we hadn't considered it. And so we, over the next few years, figured out how to get a visa, figured out how to start a company there so that we can have a a work visa, a living visa, and then we're working towards residency. It's so inspiring because I think that notion of opening the brain box is so 
powerful because we do feel like whatever we see in front of us is the only option. Yeah. And you like went into outer space. Yeah. I mean, you weren't even like, you aren't even in a, a terrestrial car yeah. with this thought. Yeah. And then you get there and like, actually it's not that far. Yeah. And yes, you take a plane there. I mean, that escape velocity to go back to the thing that like allowed me to leave New York or helped me to leave New York. It's the same thing that helped us leave the States. You build, I believe that I myself build that power and that drive and that desire and that excitement in order to launch out of what is known. And so to launch into living in Europe, which I had never done, I don't know how to speak Dutch. Like you, you, I still pay all of my bills with Google Translate hovering over the, the page because it, you know, I don't live in the US anymore. Um, and so it took a few years of the dust settling of figuring out how to live there, figuring out how to make all of that happen. Getting there was easy. The excitement and the escape velocity power of getting there is the easy part. Figuring out the downside of that. It's not a downside it's not negative it's just the the balancing of this huge rise the descending side of that is where the work is done how do you think you build escape velocity you know i think i'm in a little i'm in like in a baby escape velocity period right now just from one personal state to the next it's a shedding of a skin at this point um or changing i'm like in a cocoon and part of it the, the desire or the vision uh, arises out of need. It comes because it's necessary, because it's time for a change, and it's always uncomfortable. The, the universe, I think, starts to help. It puts things in your path that, like, they're like little breadcrumbs, little soul breadcrumbs, and then you follow those, and then you're like, oh my god, how did I get here? I made it! And so it's hard to know when you're on that path and you're picking up these little things, but then when you look back, you're like, oh my god, the path is so clear. path is so clear how I got here. Yeah. How do you get comfortable with being uncomfortable? You go to a therapist, <laughs> um, you journal, uh, you do yoga, you run really hard, and you sweat as much of it out as you can. You allow yourself to feel lost. You allow yourself to talk to all of your friends. You trust that, I mean, again, I'm talking real mystical today, um, but you trust that there's something bigger at work, um, which in like the darkest moments of the unknown uh, is the worst and not easy to do at all. But then there are moments when I, you know, I'll wake up in the morning and I feel so grateful to be alive and so grateful to have all my limbs and all of my loved ones are alive and with me. Um, and in those moments, I look at the dark moments and I'm like, we've got this, Carla. We can totally do this. So you just keep pushing until there's a breakthrough. You are making wine in Australia. Yeah. I'd love to hear about your vineyard and the wines that you're making. Yeah. So we are working in Australia in the Barossa Valley, um, and everyone's assumption about the Barossa, and a lot of that assumption is based on, on is based on fact um, a lot of the wines are big and black and inky and very extracted and these kind of like high octane wines that I've never enjoyed and so we are working in a very very different way in the Barossa there's one area in the Barossa that is all sand and we're down there working in that tiny area called the Vinevale our vineyard called the Rizablock um, is squarely in the center of Vinevale and it's estimated to have been planted between 1860 and 1880 these vines have they're dry grown, they're own rooted, they're in this this white, 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 super fine beach sand. The fact that they've lived through all of these climate changes, the fact that they don't receive any water except from rain, the fact that they've figured out how to keep it together 
and like keep marching is so inspiring to us. And so we're happy to help them in any way possible continue to do that. The, the sand and the dry farming mm-hmm. seems perfect for this climate change world, right? Yeah. We don't know how much water there will be in our future. And wine can be a water intensive yeah. crop, although there's plenty of places where grapes are grown where um, they're shy of water. Yeah. What are you thinking about climate change and the type of growing that you're doing? So it's this this past vintage. Um, it was a it was a tough vintage. Uh, it was a drought year, and it was one of the hottest years on record um, in terms of South Australia. There were some of there were some old vineyards in the Barossa um, that were on drippers, meaning like drippers for water. They were receiving water, um, and they, for whatever reason, of course, you can't see that a drought year is coming specifically. But at some point uh, over the past year, eighteen months, the people taking care of that vineyard took the the old vines off drippers um, and this year it killed a huge portion of the vineyard because it was so hot and they had no water so people think that old vines can kind of survive anything you know just like I said the romantic part of like man they figured it out you know but they've figured it out if you kind of haven't gotten in the way you know if they've had to like self-regulate um, we for this tough vintage like I said because ours are dry grown they were able to reach into the clay that's underneath the sand and pull moisture from there um, they also know how to go into this kind of it's like a quietness in terms of growing. We got a third the percentage of crop that we normally would for our vineyard this year. The fruit is the most beautiful we've ever seen. It is the, the ferments this year were pure perfume. Everyone, we work, we rent space at a winery there and the, all of us were just kept being so interested by, there was almost no fruit and yet the fruit that you got was stunning. And so you just kind of go down this like poetic thought hole of like, wow, these vines had to struggle to put this fruit out and yet the fruit that they put out is insanely beautiful. Again, these metaphors for life that we can keep <laughs> pulling from. And do you miss being a psalm? Do you miss being on the floor? Do you miss the team? Do you That's miss all those things? Um, I miss service. I miss service. Um, I don't miss being a sommelier in the sense of like the long hours. Anyone who ever leaves the restaurant world will tell you, I don't miss the hours. Um, it's nice to have your evenings and your weekends. But I do miss like the bustle of a restaurant is one of my favorite energies. So I miss that energy of the restaurant world. But the service you can find in other ways. I always have this like this visual of holding your hands together like you're cupping water. Um, and to me, that is hospitality. And you can find that. I think us coming back here and wanting to give love to people and like create a space where let's talk about anything, you know, let's talk about uh, anything that's painful or frustrating or whatever and like give love and give hugs. That is the same thing as hospitality to me. So service exists anywhere. And you were talking about how you're at a moment of you're looking back, you're looking forward and you feel the quake. Yeah. What do you feel like you're quaking towards or are we in the, you know, blindfolded soul crumbs stage? Soul crumbs stage. (laughs) The soul crumbs cocoon stage. (laughs) Exactly. Um, uh, Yeah, I have an idea. Um, We, Richard and I, were asked to be part of and asked to host a TV show. And so we filmed a pilot in March in Buenos Aires, which we'd never been to before, and it was fantastic. The show is ostensibly about beverage and travel and food. Um, And it's Richard and I hosting it. Part of my vision is um, I I want to be part of how it's re-edited and how the story is told. And so I'm just going to ask for that. And so that feels good to articulate. I want to work on something 
that is mine. I want to work on something that is not ours. And this is not because I don't want to work with Richard. It's because I need something that's just mine. Um, when we met uh, for coffee last time I was in New York, you asked me, Carla, what are you working on that isn't with Richard? And there was this like, oh shit moment. And that's one of the soul crumbs that you gave me to just be like, let's dream a little bigger. Let's do something more. So you were actually part of this growth process. So thank you. That's exciting to hear. Thank you. Thanks for the question. Um, I'm wondering what the other results of working so closely together with someone you love so much and share everything with. You know, it took us years to figure out what the balance of working professionally is together. Um, I think to, for, to have two people be partners, especially in a world where they both existed separately and then came together, it's hard. And we both are very public people in terms of what we are good at with wine. We're both good at talking about wine, educating about wine, getting people excited. And so if you have two people who are doing the same job, it doesn't make the partnership work. You need to have complementary skill sets. And so it took us years to work on those complementary skill sets um, in terms of balancing each other. And it took conversation in, in, in terms of saying, okay, I don't want to do this, or you you do want to do this. So we're still figuring that out five, six years in. And it's been a really healthy process for me to articulate for myself the, the things that I told myself that I'm not good at, that turns out I am very good at, or things that I was afraid of that actually are very exciting. And so, yeah, it takes a lot of humility, but it's, it's, a, it's a worthwhile process to put yourself in a situation where you're like, okay, cool. I don't know what I'm doing here. I'm going to learn it. And then once you learn it, how to fine tune it. That sounds like your entire life. My life. <laughs> this is me. This that is, is me. you. Right there. Uh, on each show, I ask my guest to give a shout out broadly to a woman who they admire, a woman who they want more people to know about. Who would you give a shout out to? There's a chef who I worked with. She worked under April. She ran the Breslin. She also, she worked at the Dory as well, but she was running the Breslin. Her name is Christina Lucky, and she and I were in the trenches together in terms of working with Ken and April. Um, and at that time, Christina, when you listen to this, sorry for saying this, but at that time she was the stereotypical idea of like a New York chef. She had a sharp tongue and a quick energy, and she ran that kitchen. It was it was her food's amazing. I love her food, uh, but her energy at that time was very very hard, and I never wanted to get hit by what was coming off of her tongue. And she and I always got along. We never had an issue, but it was she was a scary chef. And since the entire New York Times piece and talking to her about her experience with Ken and April, she wasn't part of that piece, but she was definitely part of that world. And we've talked a lot about that. And we've become deeper, warmer friends because of it. And she's now living in Mexico City, and she's doing nothing but loving herself. And from a, for a woman to go from acting like what they think a chef should look like um, and being hard and being aggressive to being one of the most tender, open, um, loving, wanting to give love to people type of human is a an epic journey. And I admire her so deeply and I can't wait to see what she does next. She's gaining her own type of inner velocity right now. And it's a much quieter, much more like peaceful velocity than mine tends to be. Mine tends to be explosive, but I can see magic happening in her. And she is so on her path. I admire her enormously. I can't wait to see what she does. One of the other questions that I always ask my guests, is there a product that you recommend that they might not have heard of that is worth the hype or deserves more hype? 
It's a cool question. I have three items that l literally give me balance when I travel. One is the yoga mat, and it doesn't even mean that you have to do yoga or a bunch of chaturangas. It just, I mean, sometimes I just lay it out and just l take a nap on it. It's just this mental space of giving yourself time and space to do something. So a yoga mat, you can buy anyone that you like. There's no specific product. Um, it's just the item itself. And then two others. One is something called 5-HTP, which is um, a serotonin booster, a natural serotonin booster. And um, as a woman who's aging, like I find that my body has imbalances that it didn't have when I was younger. And so it's been an exciting and challenging uh, journey to find things that balance that. And for me, 5-HTP is one of those things. It helps me feel kinder and it helps me feel more at peace. And then the third would be this... <laughs> This is such a strange little list. The third would be this thing called squalene oil. And How do you even spell squalene? S-Q-U-A-L-E-N-E, squalene. Um, and it, uh, it used to come from shark livers, but now it's done much more responsibly, and it can come, one of the vegan options is from olives. Um, and it, it, as you age, again, anybody, male or female, you lose moisture, and so this balances. It's a... It's, it's called oil, but what it does is it just, it's like it, it's like it gives your skin a drink of water. And so I'm not giving like a beauty lesson here. I'm giving this as an example because it's one of the things that makes me feel when I travel, like I'm giving something back to my body that traveling inherently takes from my body. And with that, Carl, I just want to thank you so much for coming on this show and, and sharing. If people want to follow your adventures, where should they find you? On our website, anapproachtorelaxation.com. And then, oh, you know what? On our website, we have a whole map page where we just list all of our favorite places to eat with links. And so they're Carla and Richard's lists, but it has things like our favorite diner to go to. So check that out. It's all free. I um, mean, then also on, tw uh, not Twitter, on uh, Instagram and Facebook as Carla Rizabetz. And that's C-A-R-L-A-R-Z-A-B-E-T-T-S. And you guys know where to find me. You can find me at Speaking Broadly on Instagram. If you like what you heard in this show, please listen to more. Check out Apple Podcasts, rate, review, subscribe. And I'll see you next week. Thanks so much for listening. Speaking Broadly is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash Heritage Radio Network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without the support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like. Tell your friends. And please, join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.